Hi, so I'm um, sorry to be late. I got halfway here and realized I forgot your uh, papers, your quote, papers, your work. Um, do you have papers as well? Okay, so um, if you're in Courtney's section, just get them from, go to the back of the room after class. After class, the first thing they teach you in grad school is uh, do not hand back papers at the beginning of class because what do you think people do? Although maybe it would be a smart thing because then at least you would read your comments. That would be good. Okay, here, no, not really. Um, no, no, sit down. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were just demanding your paper back. All right, um, so pick them up after class, read the comments, we worked hard on them, right? Didn't we? Don't you think I worked hard? Yeah, I see. Now you know. Um, and let me make um, some general comments about paper writing and papers. Uh, oh, I should also tell you, if you sent, um, these are the papers that were in, at least for my bunch, these are the papers that were in by midnight on Wednesday. Um, there are a couple of people who got in their papers in the wee wee hours of Thursday morning, um, so they're not done yet. Um, I plan to do them in the wee wee hours of tonight. Um, but if you got them in by midnight last Wednesday, they're here. Um, make sure you get them from the right section. Um, one person sitting way in the back um, handed in um, his paper to the wrong section. Um, so just so you know. Um, so make sure you know whose section you're in to um, get the papers back. Basic paper writing rules that will save you much grief. Um, that there are a few very standard mistakes that people make in writing that are really easily fixed, that are kind of self-fixing if you pay attention to them. It's a little bit like the constraint of the heroic couplet or the constraint of rhyming, um, the troublesome and modern bondage of rhyming, as Milton calls it. Um, if you follow constraints, you are kind of, they're like braces. They kind of force your paper writing teeth into the right configuration. Um, so here are a couple of things that you should, here are a couple of rules, or a couple of three rules, that you should always keep in mind and always work on meeting. So the first one is plot summary slash quotation um, slash repeating stuff that was said in class. That is, there are three kinds of things that are um, things that you may wish to refer to in your papers, um, what happens, what someone says, what um, people in class, especially um, your teachers, have said about what happens and what someone says. Um, you may have occasion to refer to any or all of those sorts of things. The way to do it so that people don't start just writing in giant letters, plot summary, why all this plot summary, plot summary, um, which... Uh, people have been known to do. Um, the reason, the way to do it is to make sure that, and just make this um, a, a rule that you follow in your writing. It's a really good rule for good analytic writing, is to make sure that whenever you refer to something that you expect your reader to know already, whenever you refer to the plot, of 
King Lear or Paradise Lost or Jane Eyre or whatever, you're writing for people in the class, for your teachers who already know the plot. So you don't have to remind your reader of the plot. Lear was king of England. He was old. He had three daughters. Um, two of them were older and one was younger. Yes, we know that. Um, so the way, but if, but sometimes it can be a real problem and a real pain to worry about, am I plot summarizing if I mention the fact that um, Cordelia is dead? Is that plot summarizing? So how does the reader know what I'm talking about? Here's the way to do it. Always put that sort of thing into a subordinate clause. So a subordinate clause, most of you will know, is a clause that can't stand alone, even though it has a subject and a predicate. So you can say, um, Trump won South Carolina, and that's an independent clause. If you put it into a subordinate clause, you would have something that wouldn't be a sentence. Something like, since Trump won South Carolina, period. But if I say, since Trump won South Carolina, you're expecting me to say something else. So here's the fact that's known. Trump won South Carolina. And then there's a consequence, which is what you're going to say about it. Since Trump won South Carolina, he made Cruz's path to the nomination all the narrower. Um, when Clinton won South Carolina, she proved that she would be able to win southern states in a way that she had trouble winning New Hampshire. So if I simply say, when Clinton won South Carolina, you're going to say, yeah, what? Um, the what is, is in paper writing. That's where you put in your idea or your analysis. When Lear asked his three daughters which of them loved his most, which of them loved him most, there's the plot part. Lear asked his three daughters which of them loved him most. But if you put a when at the beginning of that, when Lear asked his three daughters which of them loved his most, comma, he evinced a kind of grandiose narcissism that could only lead to disaster. So the second part of that is what you have to say about the first part. So the first part, that's what your reader knows. If you put it into a subordinate clause, what you're doing is orienting your reader as to what it is that you are focusing on. So it's hard, even with the best will in the world, not to do a little bit of plot summary, not as filler, but simply because you really want the reader to know what you're talking about. But plots have a way of running away with themselves. And the way to stop that is to put all plot summary into subordinate clauses. And if you do that, you'll find that things really, really fall into place. The same with repeating um, stuff from lecture or from class. Um, if, you, if you agree, you actually probably don't have to repeat it unless you're orienting yourself. If you disagree, that's great. Then what you can say is, if someone claims that God behaves like a tyrant in Paradise Lost, or 
in those moments in Paradise Lost where God seems to behave like a tyrant, as for example, and then you can refer to things that were said in class, you can then put your part of the sentence in the main clause. The main clause should always be you and not what's already known. Background information, plot, argument from class, lecture, um, even quotations should always be in subordinate clauses. So another way of putting this, another really important rule, is if you ever can, do not, that's badly put, whenever you can, get, do not use the following words. Whenever you can't use the following, I don't know. Don't use the following words if you can possibly help it. Say, state, remark, ask, any speech tag words. Any words that in a novel a character would be saying like, um, oh Jane, you have returned to me, comma, said Rochester. Um, those are called speech tags, the said Rochester in um, that formulation. When you're reading dialogue and you're forgetting who's who, sometimes a um, decent and humane novelist will remind you who's who. Um, will say, um, I wouldn't marry you if you were the last person on earth, unquote, said the bunny. Um, so said the bunny there is a speech tag, and then you remember who it is who's speaking. You don't need to do that in papers. And especially you don't need to tell us that an author is saying something, because we already know the author is saying it by the very fact that they're quotation marks. So don't, do not say, when Milton says, or Milton says, I come to justify the ways of God to men. Um, yeah, he does say that, and we know that. So you will find that your writing is much, much better if you do not use any form. The worst is state, by the way. Never use the word state as a verb. Never, ever, ever, unless you're a lawyer and you're talking about what Bill Clinton stated to um, um, in, in, in sworn interrogatories in 1998. Otherwise, never, ever use the word state as a verb. Seriously, your life will be so much better as far as paper grading goes if you don't use state as a verb. Yes? Can you give an example of how you would introduce a quote in a paper? Yeah. So what you would, the best way to put quotations in papers is to assimilate them to your own grammar. So when Milton tries, quote, to justify the ways of God to men, unquote, he is taking, he is biting off a whole lot more than any human could be expected to chew. Okay, so when Milton tries, quote, to justify the ways of God to men, unquote, he's biting off more than any human could um, be expected to chew. So the quotation means that's Milton. If it's not Milton, then you footnote it. If you say, when Milton tries, quote, to show that he's a great epic poet, unquote, footnote, in the words of the Milton-hating um, Mortimer Snurd, um, but if you're quoting Milton, all you have to do is put when Milton tries, quote, to justify the ways of God to men, unquote, and then you can say 1.19. That is book one, line 19. He is biting off more than he can chew. Yes, Zara, right? Does this apply to, like, in King Lear when you're saying a character says something? 
Yeah, well, what you can do is say when Lear um, um, rejects Cordelia, or when in Lear, what, sorry, I'm trying, give, give me a line from Lear and I'll give you a way to quote it. Uh, what, you don't have, well, what? Okay, so so um, Cordelia Cordelia's um, okay, so um, Lear's Lear's um, castigation of Cordelia, comma that nothing will come of nothing, comma misses the point. Um, she's not um, giving him nothing. She's blah blah blah. So sometimes it's going to be hard. But it's always one of those cases where if it's hard, it'll actually yield, it's worth the effort um, because the labor will come out in better sentences. But um, what you don't want to do is write sentences like um, when um, um, the son says, hast thou in derision them father, unquote, his use of the word derision reminds us blah, blah, blah. So, because you can hear that that doesn't sound like an English sentence when the son says, hast thou them in derision, father? Um, but when the son um, admires his father for having the human's quote, or the rebel angel's quote, in derision, then if you didn't hear if someone didn't stop to say, quote, if you were hearing someone read this aloud and they didn't put in the quotation marks or didn't do air quotes, um, then you might still hear it as perfectly ordinary English. Um, maybe fancy pants English, but perfectly ordinary English. The point is quotation marks should be seen and not heard. Quotation marks should be seen and not heard. We hear quotation marks when you use a word like says, and then when you have a fragment which is not grammatically related to the sentence that it's in. So this is, this is actually a deep philosophical point about quotation that, people, that philosophers continue to argue. But one theory of quotation is that quotation is like a picture of a text. That is, that when you take a verbatim quotation, it's almost as though you are taking a picture of a text. That picture is itself an object. It's like when you're putting, um, adding objects to a Word file. The quotation is like an object. I noticed that some of you quoted Milton from the internet because when um, I clicked to correct something, I got to the website. Um, so what you did was you took, you cut and pasted an object into your own paper, and you treated it like an object. But a quotation shouldn't be treated like an object. It should be an object, that is, it should be an exact replica of the words, not of the, not of the hyphens if the word is at the end of the line or something, not of the typography, but an exact replica of the words, a verbatim transcript of the words that you're quoting. But your verbatim transcript should be also treated as grammatical words that fit in like a puzzle piece to the words that are your pieces of the puzzle. So you should be able to snap them in rather than kind of lie them on your puzzle, the puzzle that is your paper. Does that make sense to people? 
so you want it to sound to someone who is hearing this read aloud as grammatically normal rather than um, Lear shows that he is a complete buffoon by out of my sight. Okay, so you can hear that you can hear where the quotation starts, right? Where? Yeah, because that's where the grammar goes wiggy. Lear shows that he's a complete buffoon by out of my sight. But many of you will be attempt will be tempted to write Lear shows that he is a complete buffoon by out of my sight, which is a buffoonish thing to say. Um, and that that is not the way you want your sentences to flow. You want them to flow so that you are giving a context for what you're quoting, and the fact that what you're quoting fits into that context so well shows that the context you're giving for it is accurate or persuasive. So Lear shows that he's a complete buffoon by demanding that Kent go, quote, out of my sight or out of his sight. Don't worry so much about the pronouns. That's the, that's, um, it's okay in quotations to keep the original pronouns rather than to put in brackets and um, change them. But by doing that, what you're doing is you're giving a sentence which, because it contains the quotation so well, is persuasive as an interpretation of the quotation. Because your sentence is part paraphrase and part actual verbatim transcription. And the paraphrase with transcription indicates that the paraphrase is right because, it, because the transcription fits so well into it. So that's always, that's another general rule for writing that will make your writing better, is make your quotations grammatically consonant or consistent with the sentences that quote them. Se and don't do it by saying says, which is a way of doing it, but the weakest way. Don't say Lear states, out of my sight, Kent. Um, because then you're not making an argument, you're just doing plot summary. Lear says that, yeah, we know that. Um, so. When, the other thing then is when you're quoting, as with plot summary, try to do it in subordinate clauses. If you must say says, do it in a subordinate clause. When Lear demands that his daughter say um, who loves me most, he is making a fool of himself. And then your interpretation, your analysis, Lear is making a fool of himself, is supported by the evidence that comes in the subordinate clause. So when Lear does X, when Lear says X, put those in subordinate clauses so that the main clause will be what you have to say about the thing you're pointing to in a subordinate clause. OK, does that make sense to people? When I say use a subordinate clause, I am urging you to put your own arguments um, first or make your own arguments more prominent. So I just did that. I quoted myself. When I say use a subordinate clause, I am urging you to make your own arguments the most prominent part of the sentence. 
And when I just said that I just did that and said when I urge you to use a subordinate clause, what I'm urging, blah, 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 I'm giving an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Okay? So the new thing should be in a main clause. And when I say the new thing should be in a main clause, I mean it. Okay. <laughs> so keep that as um, your, um, uh, uh, ba basically as, as your basic rule. When Hamlet says to be or not to be, um, he is parroting a cliche. That's not so good because it's when Hamlet says, but at least it's in a subordinate clause. But um, when Hamlet debates whether to be or not to be, he is showing us how distressed he is. Then, if you didn't know to be or not to be was from Hamlet, that might sound like a reasonable sentence. When Hamlet debates whether to be or not to be, where are the quotation marks? Yeah, around to be or not to be, but if you didn't know it, you wouldn't know it. And that's the point. When Hamlet debates whether to be or not to be, he is showing the, the level of his distress. Um, and that could be paraphrase or it could be quotation. The point is, quotation should sound as though the whole thing might be paraphrase unless you're actually looking at the quotation marks. So that's that rule. So much for that rule. Finally, avoid passives. So whenever you write a sentence in the passive, sometimes they're inevitable. Sometimes passives must be used. But generally, you should not use them. So what's the difference between passives must be used and you should not use them? What's the passive and what's the active? Yeah. <laughs> and if you say passives must be used, it's like every president ever saying mistakes were made, which is what they keep saying when they have screwed up. So if you say mistakes were made, what you're not doing is saying who made the mistakes. But if you're saying, I made a mistake, or um, this person I just fired made the mistake, you're actually saying more. So passives are a really good way. I mean, you should learn this, but learn it by, by noticing um, how you can't do it in papers. Passives are a really good way of evading responsibility. Um, the cookies were eaten. Yeah, that's true. The cookies were eaten. I'm not going to deny that the cookies were eaten, but now I've got to go. Um, <laughs> what you're not doing is copying to being the cookie eater. But if you say, yes, that little brother that you created for me who was supposed to help me, he was the one who ate the cookies and then gave me one, then you're assigning responsibility. And that is giving more information to the reader. The reason to avoid passives for yourself, it's partly a stylistic thing, which is reading stuff in the passive is like reading legal prose. So it's partly a stylistic thing. But the other reason is that it forces you to confront what you know and what you don't know. That is, if you have to figure out who killed the fool, then to say my poor fool is hanged allows you not to figure it out, simply to notice that the fool is hanged. But if you say, and Gloucester, just before he died, hanged my fool, that's going to totally change your reading of King Lear.
if Gloucester hanged the fool. Hanged, by the way, not hung. If Gloucester hanged the fool. That will totally change your reading of King Lear. If Cordelia hanged the fool, that will totally change your reading of King Lear. So when Lear says, my poor fool is hanged, that leaves us with a mystery. If you're Shakespeare, you can do it. But in a paper, if you're saying something happened, then you should say, who caused it to happen? And if you don't know, you should say so. If you say, you can say, someone hanged the fool. You can say, um, someone, um, I'm trying to think of an example in Paradise Lost, but um, I won't. Um, because Milton almost always uses active verbs. Um, but when you figure out who did something, not only does your reader know more from your sentence, but you will know more. So these rules, they're not really that many. And they are also not persnickety. Lots and lots and lots of rules that you get for writing, lots and lots of rules that um, you learn in um, writing courses, that you're told in writing books and so on, lots of them are persnickety. These are rules that, will, that like rhyming, like iambic pentameter, will force you to do certain things if you follow them. And these things will be extremely good for the clarity of your writing and also for the clarity of your thinking. So these rules um, put orienting, orientating, as some people say, information into subordinate clauses. Assimilate quotation to the grammar of your sentence, which is another way of saying assimilate the grammar of your sentence to the thing that you're quoting and avoid passives wherever possible. If you follow just those three rules, your writing will get much better simply by following those rules. It's like when you learn to follow through in sports. Hit the ball, but follow through. And you can think to yourself, why do I need to follow through? The ball's already left the racket. Um, but the answer is anticipating the follow-through. Any of you who are athletes will know this, that anticipating the follow-through will force a different stroke from the stroke that you'll have if you're not worrying about the follow-through. So the follow-through seems like stupid. You've said what you wanted to say. But treat avoiding passives, treat assimilating quotations, treat subordinate clauses as something that will govern the whole sentence and make the sentence a better so if you do that, that'll be good. Um, one other word to say is that if you're disappointed with your grade, um, I think I mentioned this in the first class, but I'll say this again. Um, the worst that you will do in this class is the average of everything that you do. But um, any improvement that you make will count more um, than degeneration will count. In other words, if you get a CC and an A in this class on your three papers, you will do better than if you get an A followed by two Cs. If you get an A followed by two Cs, you'll get the average of those grades for your papers. If you get two Cs and an A, the improvement will be meaningful. And um, so, it's, so the worst you'll do is the average. But if you improve, um, you can um, find salvation, not by your own merit, perhaps, but um, because of um, the, the sheer generosity of the Son of God. 
um, or whoever. Um, okay, so uh, that's what you should think about these papers. Um, all right, um, let's go. I wanted to look at one more um, Song of Innocence, but we'll have to do it um, very quickly because we also do really have to get to um, Wordsworth. Um, the um, Song of Innocence that um, I'd like to, us to look at is the innocent version of the chimney sweep. So the chimney sweep is one of those um, paired poems. Um, the innocent version is the experienced version essentially tells you how to understand the innocence version in case you miss the point. But remember again that this is the chimney sweeper. Um, remember again that the um, innocent version stood alone. And um, somewhat like the little black boy, um, what we have to do as those who are not um, innocent reading this poem, what we have to do is understand what the singer of the poem doesn't understand himself about what he's being made to think, what the authorities are teaching him. Um, so just to read the poem very quickly and then note a couple of things about it. Um, when my mother died, says the young chimney sweeper, remember, by the way, in case you don't know, that at the time it was a really, really dreadful thing. Chimneys being chimneys are narrow. Um, chimneys being chimneys won't let Santa Claus through them. To clean a chimney, you have to be very small. So chimney sweepers tended to be very young children, um, almost always boys. So very young boys who were small enough to be able to get through the chimneys. So this was an awful job that could only be done by child labor. It was a job in which child labor was demanded, and um, it was an unutterably unhealthy job. The soot that the chimney sweepers went through as they scrambled up and down the chimneys um, was full of carcinogens. Not that they had the concept then, but it peeled their skin. It was full of um, caustic residues of the ashes. You know that ashes are, are um, used to make soap. The reason ashes are used to make soap is that they are full of caustic alkaline substances, which are really terrible for the human body, terrible for um, the human skin. And so these little young boys were being sent through this toxic sludge um, to clean the chimneys for those who could afford chimneys, who could afford fireplaces, who could afford chimney sweeps. Um, if the chimneys weren't swept, the houses would burn up um, because this toxic sludge was also very easy to ignite. So here's the chimney sweeper who begins, when my mother died, I was very young. Um, already a heartbreaking first line, not only because his mother died, but because, and here you'll see the amazing segue from what I said about paper writing to this poem, because the death of his mother is in the subordinate clause. It's not as you would expect when I was very young my mother died, which is the sad fact, 
But here, when my mother died, that's sort of the given. That's why it's in the subordinate clause. When my mother died, I was very young. So that my mother will die, this young boy, this child, he already knows that mothers die. The only question is when. And for him, it was when he was very young. So it's almost, remember the, the Pope couplet, I am his majesty's dog at Q. Pray tell me, sir, whose dog are you? In Blake might, meet, might go something heartbreakingly like this. Um, when my mother died, I was very young. Pray tell me, how old were you when your mother died? That is the assumption, is mothers die. It's a little bit also like Lear saying, um, when did you give all to your daughters? To Edgar. That is, it's the assumption is, this is inevitable. And that's a terrible assumption. True though it may be, a terrible assumption for a little boy to have. When my mother died, I was very young, and my father sold me, while yet my tongue could scarcely cry, weep, 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 weep. So his father sold him to be a chimney sweep. He is trying to say the words sweep, 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 but we know, of course, that the crucial sound in those words is not sweep, but weep. He's lisping the word sweep, and it's coming out as weep. I want to weep your chimneys, is what he's saying. He's calling, he's advertising his wares for the chimney sweeper bosses, those who run the chimney sweeps. And so he goes around crying, weep, 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 weep. So your chimneys I sweep, and in soot I sleep, covered with soot in some sort of dormitory for these orphaned or semi-orphaned chimney-sweeping boys. Who else sleeps in soot? Well, there's little Tom Dacre, who cried when his head that curled like a lamb's back was shaved. Again, notice the subordinate clause. He cried when this thing that always happens, happens. When his head that was curled like a lamb's back was shaved. So here you should be thinking also of the lamb earlier in the Songs of Innocence. Now there's little Tom Dacre who cried when his head that curled like a lamb's back was shaved. So I said, hush, Tom, never mind it. For when your head's bare, you know that the soot cannot spoil your white hair. So it's okay that you've lost all your hair because now the soot can't spoil it, which is called comfort. But it worked. And so he was quiet. So this little boy manages to calm down one of the other pathos-laden, pitiful chimney sweepers. And so he was quiet. And that very night, as Tom was asleeping, he had such a sight. He had a vision of heaven. That thousands of sweepers, Dick, Joe, Ned, and Jack, were all of them locked up in coffins of black. So the dream starts out very badly. Thousands of sweepers are locked up in coffins of black. Um, dream interpreters, what are those coffins? Yeah. Chimneys? Yes. Or um, reality interpreters, what are the chimneys for these children? 
Yeah, coffins. So in the dream, the chimneys become coffins, but the dream is true. The chimneys are coffins, or very close to coffins, for these little kids. So he had this dream. The thousands of sweepers, Dick, Joe, Ned, and Jack, were all of them locked up in coffins of black, and by came an angel, yay, who had a bright key, and he opened the coffins and set them all free. So go, angel. Then down a green plain, leaping, laughing, they run and wash in a river and shine in the sun. Then naked and white, all their bags left behind, they rise upon clouds and sport in the wind. And the angel told Tom, if he'd be a good boy, he'd have God for his father and never want joy. So the angel says, be a good boy, and eventually you'll get to go to heaven, and God will be your father, and you'll never want joy. Now, those of you who... Oh, I can't remember which novel it is now. Oh, yeah, um, those of you who have read Neverwhere? Anyone read it? Okay, there's an amazing angel in Neverwhere, um, Neil Gaiman. Um, so... Um, here's this angel, and he seems to be a good angel. Not in the Miltonic sense of good angel, that is chicken angel, but in the real sense of good angel, an angel who saves these poor children. But he may actually be a Miltonic angel. He may be an angel who seems to be a force of goodness, but if you think about it, Blake is treating as a force of evil. And the reason for that is what he says is to Tom, if he'd be a good boy, he'd have God for his father. So what is being a good boy for Tom? Well, it's chimney sweeping. So what the angel is basically saying is the reason you're suffering is essentially the fall of humanity. You're suffering for the same reason Adam and Eve do, which is that the curse denounced upon us is the curse of labor and then death. Not only death, but labor. In Paradise Lost, in Genesis, the curse is that we will get our bread in the sweat of our, of our brows. That's one kind of labor, the labor of everyday work. And also that women will have extraordinary pain, unlike almost any other animal, women will have extraordinary pain in labor, in childbirth. Um, labor as what you have to do every day to make a living, labor as what it's like to give birth. That's not only an English association, it's, a, it's um, a, an association in other languages as well. The word travail, which means um, pain and difficulty, is a word that comes from a word meaning um, labor, travail, which also means the labor of giving birth. All of those things, travail, labor, suffering, all of those things are our condition as those who have fallen. And the angel says, work really hard. Go through all this labor as in pain. Do all of these things. That's what being a good boy means. 
It means being a good chimney sweep. That's not what Blake thinks being a good boy is, but it's what the angel told Tom. So what the angel told Tom is not what Blake thinks. What Blake thinks is that these chimney sweepers are being treated as, as, um, tor as tormentingly, as terribly, as torturously as you can imagine one human being treating another. And then the very chilling words, again, the speaker doesn't know this, but we know it. Blake knows it. Blake wants us to know this, this but the speaker doesn't. The chilling words are, if he'd be a good boy, he'd have God for his father. But we already know from this poem what fathers do. Fathers sell children. So, my father sold me, while yet my tongue could scarcely cry, weep, 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 weep. So, when did your father sell you? My father sold me when I could barely say the word weep. How old were you when your father sold you? That, again, is the implication. That the word, the person, the figure of the father is the figure who sells people, sells their children. So here, we're told, well, you'll have God for a father. And what the speaker thinks that means is you lost your father, but you'll get a better father. But what Blake means by that, it's again which way the arrow is going, from chimney to coffin or from coffin to chimney. Here, it's is the arrow going from bad father to good father, father who sold you to father who will come and rescue you? Or is it a, di a somewhat different sort of arrow, which is father who sold you, at least he was human. To have God for a father means there's no hope at all, now that we know what fathers do in this poem. So the angel comes and says, work really hard, destroying yourself, destroying your body, sleeping in soot, um, peeling skin off your body, suffering, oozing pestilentially out of all the sores caused by this chimney sweeping. Do that with a good will, and you'll go to heaven. You'll be rewarded. So the chimney sweepers are being bribed by the hope of an afterlife. This life is hard, but in the next life, if you accept the horrible suffering and labor imposed upon you as poor people in this life, in the afterlife, you'll get rewarded. So it's all okay. So the angel who says that is an evil angel. And Blake is underlining it with those words, he'd have God for his father. And never want joy, which again seems like it sounds like he'll never lack joy. But it may also mean he'll give up on any desire for joy. He'll stop wanting joy. He still has hopes. But once he has God for his father, there won't be any hope. No wanting of joy will be left. And it worked, what the angel did. And so Tom awoke, and we rose in the dark, and got with our bags and our brushes to work. So it's still dark. We rose in the dark means we rose 
before dawn, but also means we scrambled up the chimneys. We rose in the dark of the chimneys of the soot. And so we didn't rise to the regions of light, which is what a true religious, what a death in an optimistic religious um, context would tell you. It's we rose in the dark. It was all dark. Where God is a father, it's dark there. And got with our bags and our brushes to work. Though the morning was cold, Tom was happy and warm. So if all do their duty, they need not fear harm. So that last line, which sounds like uh, the moral of the story, that's the moral that the owners, that the bosses want the little boys to believe. If they're good, if they're good boys, if they do their duty, everything will be fine. So they shouldn't object to the horrible oppression that they are being subjected to. They should see it as what will eventually lead them to salvation. Blake does not think this. And what he is showing, and again, I think this is extraordinary, is he's showing a boy who is purely, perfectly innocent, the speaker of this poem, the chimney sweeper, whose innocence itself, we are in a position to see the irony of. We are in a position to see that that innocence is making him vulnerable to believing the very things that he says. And what he believes, Blake shows us the other meaning. Having God for a father is not such a good thing doing your duty and not fearing harm, that's what the poem wants you to believe. And again, you should be able to feel Blake's anger, even though this boy, whom we love, doesn't feel it and doesn't know it. Yeah, Lily. Because he does kind of, um, convey what he's been taught by saying don't worry about your hair. It's okay, at least you lose it now and you'll be collected later. So I think he actually imbues the kid with a little bit of corruption to show how horrible it is that he buys into. Well, so where's the corruption there? I mean, it's the, true that he... he Instead of the, the adult saying, Tom, it's the kid saying. You know, it's the, this is what the adults will tell, tell you, let me tell you that you don't have to worry about it because at least they won't be certain. Like, well, I think I think he is an agent of the corruption, but doesn't know it. That is that what he's doing is is part of what the corrupt are doing is they are relying on the fact that the that the innocent will comfort each other, and um, because they're comforted, they won't rebel. So the fact that they're comforting each other is not a good thing, but it's a good thing about them as people, even if it's politically not a good thing. Yeah, sorry. So maybe he's not innocent, maybe he's naive. Yeah. Um, and, but innocent in the sense of unmerited misfortune, to go back to the Aristotelian um, term, naive in the sense of just not understanding what's happening to him, um, not even knowing that what's happening to him is wrong, um, knowing it's unpleasant, but not knowing that it's wrong. Um, Okay, so how will we start Wordsworth? We'll say, Wordsworth, now we've started. Um, okay, so Wordsworth Wednesday. Um, get your papers in my section. They're up here in Courtney's section back there.